Welcome to Terrograms. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone, and I'll be your host for the 16th delivery of Terrograms. In this dispatch, we are in Watertown, Massachusetts, and are joined by Gary Hildebrand. Gary is a registered landscape architect, and with Douglas Reed, is principal of the studio Reed Hildebrand. Reading directly from their philosophy statement, Reed Hildebrand is founded on the belief that the designed landscape is among the most potent and durable instruments of cultural expression. Striving for clarity of purpose in all aspects of design, they collaborate with artists and professionals to help institutions, public stewards, and individuals articulate ideas through landscape. They work at the vital intersection of nature and culture, integrating responsible care for the land with the ordinary and extraordinary needs of modern life. In 2005, the Architectural League of New York named Gary Hildebrand and Douglas Reed as emerging voices. They have received more than a dozen ASLA awards, including two awards of excellence, as well as nearly 30 Boston Society of Landscape Architects awards. Their work includes residential, institutional, schools, and park landscapes, and recently they've designed projects for the Phoenix Art Museum, the Clark Art Institute, Bennington College, as well as a garden for a 1964 house by the architect Philip Johnson. Gary delivered one of the keynote lectures at the 5th Biennale of Landscape in Barcelona and curated an exhibition highlighting landscape architecture work from North America for the same event. In 1995, Gary was awarded a Landscape Architecture Fellowship at the American Academy in Rome. He has taught at the Harvard Graduate School of Design since 1990 and is currently an adjunct professor. Today I'm here in Watertown, Massachusetts, just next to the Mount Auburn Cemetery in the office of Reed Hildebrand. And I'd like to introduce you to Gary Hildebrand, one of the founding partners of Reed Hildebrand. Thank you for joining us on this dispatch of telegrams. Happy to have you here on my territory. After dedicating yourself to teaching for over a decade at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, what inspired you to uh, literally extract yourself from that environment and make a partnership with Douglas Reed and move into a very serious um, trajectory uh, of professional work? Well, many threads, uh, many threads there. Uh, n no one thing and no real extraction, uh, in a sense, because I never left Harvard. Now they're 18 years, and it was a matter of uh, changing the changing levels of input and uh, output, and you know I never really stopped practicing even if I was teaching full-time so I of course uh, had an interest in doing research and did that uh, while practicing and teaching in the early 90s and uh, probably the real turning point for me was um, taking the Rome Prize as I know it might have been for you too uh, the Rome year in Rome uh, made me reflect quite differently on uh, the prospect of having, let's say, multiple career paths at once, which is really the way I kind of think of it. I, I haven't ever really wanted to be thought of as, as being uh, singly motivated or doing one thing, but living in Rome for a year and looking at the ground all the time and looking at old ground, new ground, modified ground, uh, told me uh, very clearly that I wanted to build again and I wanted to build in a way that I hadn't built previously. So I knew when I was returning from Rome that I was going to have a practice that was more significant and was going to take a greater proportion of my effort. Doug and I had been talking for probably two years before that about working together. Uh, without any particular formulation. And so, really within a year after returning, we were working together and uh, joined forces in a competition, won the competition, and then it took off the competition for the Arnold Arboretum's uh, proposed shrub and vine collection. And so, uh, I would say it was a conspiracy of factors, but remains a juggling act. And 
the levers go up and down uh, depending on the semester, the workload, and um, and the opportunities that present themselves. And this this catalyst that caused the conspiracy. Um, how big were you when when you came together? How did you have many other uh, workers? Well. Uh, you know, I had a firm of one, sometimes two. Doug had a firm of four. And so in 97, when we joined together, I think we were five people. And we were five for a while. And then we were seven, and then we were 10, and then we were 12, and now we're 22. Hmm. Uh, so that's a 10-year ten a 10-year stretch. That uh, It's been about 11 years now, since I guess, since we've been working together. So the growth has been from about five to about... No, close to 25. Mm -hmm. And what makes your partnership click? Well, there's many, many, many ingredients to that, but the main thing is really shared pursuits. We, we both share a love of the landscape. We both uh, were deeply attached to the landscapes of our childhoods. Both have a deep and abiding interest in history. And, uh, and the way that history is expressed in landscapes as they evolve. We both love art. We both love uh, design. And it's a partnership that is construed really of similar and complementary strengths. We, we don't divide our uh, responsibilities in the firm uh, we share all of the responsibility, and we both work on projects. Neither one of us is a business partner. We're both running the business and uh, heading the projects. Isn't this inefficient? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a weak business model that we love. <laughs> it's, um, but, it, but it is a manifestation of the things we love. You mentioned it's a weak business model. Does it, <laughs> does it mean that design, uh, landscape design, is weak business, or is there a possibility, is there hope for making a strong landscape architecture practice uh, also a good business model? Weak business model, strong practice is maybe a good way to, a good way to watch that. Uh, I, I think there's, there's tremendous strength in, in the field, and I think weak business model probably means that we have, there's some inefficiencies in how we're built, but there's great strength in the combined forces of ourselves and a, and a pretty pretty strongly dedicated staff to the to the generalist practice of landscape architecture. And you've had a pretty big core in the office of colleagues that have stayed with you for a long time. What's, mm -hmm. what's your uh, what's the magic of keeping them here and keeping them convinced this is this is this is the group practice for them? Maybe you should ask others that question, but I, I have some suspicions about it. I I think we we uh, we've tried to make uh, our practice uh, a community and a good place to work, and I think we've shown our dedication to the to the quality of the work and to our desire to build a body of work that's durable. And we know, what, we know that it takes um, tremendous seasoning and, and, um, and real experience and real conviction to build beautiful work. And really to accept uh, you know, some of the challenging things that landscape architects are faced with doing. And so retaining talent that you build the firm on is crucial. You know, and sometimes we look at history of 20th century firms that have grown and contracted and, you know, fired everybody on a Thursday as interesting uh, and different models, but we, we kind of like our model of, um, of uh, keeping seasoned people here and, and really maybe also this is uh, this is part of the inefficiency uh, aspect of the of the way we built the practice we expect all of our landscape architects to do all the things that we know how to do hmm. and so we have no specialization in the office and we're trying to make sure that everyone can be authoritative on uh, what it takes to conceive and develop and build and complete and maintain a landscape 
And so that's, I think those are some of the reasons why it's um, remained a, a, a good place to work for some of our staff now who have been with us 10 or 12 years. And your younger, your younger staff, what role do they take within this, this structure? Well, it, I think by implication you can understand that it means that, that growth isn't rapid uh, in, a, in a firm like this, which, which tries to teach people all of the required traits and uh, skills through pretty careful mentoring over fairly long periods of time. Landscape projects take from a year to six or seven years to complete, and uh, we do our best to maintain the same staff on those projects throughout that time period uh, through the belief that, that the intentions will be held up throughout the process and, and that the staff who are working on something over that period of time will be absolutely sure about their convictions in the project and be able to protect the intentions and, to, and then to build their own uh, more mature levels of um, capability in conceiving and developing and building. So th those are absolutely reciprocal and uh, so far so good. <laughs> are the young, the, the young graduates prepared to work or is there a lot of post-academic training that that needs to be done. Um, are the universities doing their job at, 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 at making young pr practitioners ready? Uh, I, I think I have two answers. One is that I, I find our, the graduates that we're able to hire uh, immensely prepared and uh, incredibly motivated. That's why they get hired. And that's what we size up. We try not to size up talent, but we try to size up motivation and fit. Because I think we provide the environment to, to develop design skills to the high degree that's needed here. On the other hand, with great preparation and great drive, I think we find that it still takes us a number of years to get staff to a point where they can indeed be authoritative on sites. Mm -hmm. The thing that people underestimate about, about the work that we do in this field is that decisions are made daily on sites by uh, all kinds of people, uh, either in contracting or managing, or they make fiscal decisions, or they make decisions about style or preference, and the uh, the need to cultivate clarity around uh, the operations on a site and the way that uh, the intentions are being communicated is something that just takes real practice. That's why we call it practice, and uh, that's, that's what we do. We work hard on that here. You've written about, written about the work of Dan Kiley, Innocenti and Webel, Hargraves Associates, Michael Van Valkenburg, are these practices or practitioners that have influenced your work? And if that's not a complete list, who are those who have influenced your, your work? Surely been influenced by all of those. And uh, I would say that by far the central figure uh, in my career path there is Dan Kiley, someone whose work I was drawn to probably uh, first time I ever really looked at what the field was about. And I would say that my focus on these practices was, was also driven by opportunities that presented themselves to me as an academic or as a young practitioner who was trying to be uh, serious about its pursuits. The Innocenti and Webel uh, work that I pursued as an academic was uh, really an outgrowth of the American Academy in Rome experience, but I saw interesting parallels to other careers in the 20th century in, in the life of Richard Webble. And I had always felt that that period of his practice, the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s, was rather underestimated in terms of its worth, its lessons, its... Uh, the foundations that it provided for a, a more modernist practice to the mid-century. And so it, was, it seemed really worth looking at and a very convincing body of work, an amazing body of work, 
to try to understand the heritage and traditions and parallels and uh, things that were laying the groundwork for a more modernist practice. It's been always interesting to me to lecture about the, the world that Innocenti and Webel operated in, an aristocratic uh, world uh, just before a great worldwide depression, and then to look at the work of um, uh, the early career of Dan Kiley in the period between the wars and then immediately after World War II, where the circumstances of building uh, were radically different. And to understand what things carry through those traditions in those times and what things were really different about them always seemed compelling to me and um, formed, I think, the the body of things that I wanted to work on as a, as a young teacher and researcher. Writing about the work of Hargraves and Van Valkenburg and other more current contemporary practitioners is a way for me to situate my own thoughts about landscape architecture and its contemporary practice. And also, I feel rather strongly that as a field, uh, landscape architecture, has uh, shown a kind of deficiency in uh, looking looking in on itself in more scholarly terms. And so when the opportunities presented themselves, it felt right to me to try to participate and to contribute as a practitioner looking critically at other contemporary practitioners' works. This is a long tradition in, in architecture, there is a, a long tradition in the sciences of examination of other bodies of work, and it's in some ways surprising to me that uh, landscape architects have, until recently, not produced a large body of work that is critical of its own in, uh, inside the field uh, situation. Why do you think there's this lack of an, uh, engagement? A small field with a deep intellectual history that is um, somewhat suppressed. I think uh, a lack of scholars looking at the material. You know, I, I can I can look back to when I was an undergraduate and even as a graduate student, remembering a fairly limited body of knowledge to build on from looking at 20th century practices and 19th century practices. Not that much work on even on Olmsted in that period. When I look today, 25 years later, there's a remarkable shift. Uh, and so I think that with the complete rise in the, in the respect and, the, and also the sense of the need of rescuing the earth and the environment uh, that has come really through now generations of uh, environmentalism, there is just a great increase in the focus, scholarly focus, research focus, practice focus, on what it, what it means to conceive and build landscapes. Is it coming from the inside or from the outside? I think it came from the outside uh, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. For instance, it's really, it's really interesting to me that in the first half of the 20th century, there was very little work done on Olmsted. You can find Mumford talking about Olmsted and a few other writers. But it's in the 1950s and 60s, in departments of social sciences and history, that Olmsted begins to be recovered as a significant American figure. And it's then in the 60s and 70s that landscape architecture, in a way, rehabilitates Olmsted through the work of social scientists like Charles Beveridge and Charles McLaughlin and Albert Fine, Cynthia Zaitsevsky, people who come not from landscape architecture but from other fields, uh, and, and develop the beginnings of a body of critical investigation on a practice of landscape architecture. And since that time, now only 25 years or so, there's been a huge kind of burgeoning of of scholarly interest and production. Now it seems as if you know there are books coming every day, hmm. uh, which is really a welcome thing. Do you think this may be from 
an increase in growth of the academic system and or the increase in practitioners bridging over between the academic world and the built world, some other well, factor? I think there is, in a way, there's a kind of urgency for the culture to understand the landscape as the place of working to expand the city or to re-inhabit the city or to um, reoccupy um, post-industrial conditions in the edges of the city and in the center of the city. Others are more articulate about this than me, but clearly the landscape has become the substrate. And it's partly about rescuing our spoiled land and partly about uh, addressing social change, economic change, the rise of um, the rise of the middle class, and then the suppression of the middle class, kind of happening on the heels of the rise of that class. And there's just um, no question that the landscape is really the place to work. So, along with the increase in uh, the number of programs, the number of um, fields that are interested in the landscape. We know engineering is interested in infrastructure and the landscape. Architects have taken it up in a very big way. Artists have, uh, there's just no question that it's become kind of the territory mm -hmm. to work on. So I think, uh, I think this has also created, in a sense, the demand for better scholarship, uh, in some ways better substantiation of of a discipline organized around working the landscape. Perhaps here we could cite the, the movement or the growth of landscape urbanism as a term which is driving uh, specific practices, even university programs, as a manifestation to this urgency, this need. How does Reed Hildebrand position itself within the growing territory of landscape urbanism? Well, I think we, we tend to call ourselves landscape architects. We tend to share the same concerns with those who identify themselves with landscape urbanism. I think we believe in the same things and don't, don't feel the need for a new terminology. But we are we're benefiting, really, from uh, what uh, a group of highly motivated people has done for the field in trying to identify and really clarify the place of the landscape in planning, in development, in the rebuilding of infrastructure, and, uh, and in, let's say, either the consolidation or expansion of the city as, as the economics will, will define. In other words, I think I'm, I'm grateful uh, for the focus on it, and I think it has created uh, new opportunities for the field. Uh, and uh, you know, my fervent hope is that the field, writ large, the discipline, and the and specifically the profession of landscape architecture, will rise to the occasion and will answer to the. Uh, to the great challenge that's out there for rebuilding the do you, landscape. Do you feel the voice of the practice of landscape architecture is being heard? I do. I think the evidence is, is in the large public competitions in North America over the last 10 years. I think this isn't being... Um, this doesn't happen because landscape architects are promoting it as much as it comes out as a, uh, a manifestation of a, of a shift in the culture, a recognition of shared power, power that's shared among stakeholders, power not centrally located either in a developer or in an architect or in a planner or in a landscape architect. And I, I, this is really the key for me, that, that these public competitions, beginning with the Downsview competition in Toronto 10 years ago, 
the High Line in New York and Fresh Kills in New York and the Orange County Great Park in California and the cornfields in Los Angeles, the Shelby Farms Park in, um, in Memphis. These, these projects are happening this way because no single authority or designer can put together what is needed to reorganize large and significant sites in a way that speaks to the program of today's culture. The program of these places is uh, multifarious, it's overlapping, it's got competing interests, and importantly, and never to be forgotten, uh, everyone who, who is involved in these, or who is an owner, or who is an, a butter, or who has really any relationship to these somewhat contested territories, feels or believes in the need to do them, to, to build them in a way that is sustainable. I think the culture has really changed. Mm -hmm. And so the drive to make places that work as landscapes, work as habitats, work as drainage uh, devices, work as places of connectivity. These are things that no one, one first, no great person like Olmsted can do. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the geography of these and the, and the infrastructure of these projects really means that landscape architects are uh, indispensable, as are ecologists, as are engineers, as are architects, and as are planners, and as are facilitators. Mm -hmm. It's just impossible to build you know, a 3,500-acre project in Memphis or a 100-acre uh, you know, project even in some cities without constituting that kind of overlapping uh, set of uh, expertises. And I, I think this is where landscape architecture has quietly over a century in North America uh, worked, but now has the opportunity, I think, more forcefully and more visibly to work. Do you see these complex design teams being assembled and uh, used on other projects that are not competition-based and not necessarily uh, public-oriented? Yeah. Here's where I think um, I can answer the question about uh, Reed Hildebrand's place, let's say, in, in this discussion of, a, of, a, of a landscape urbanism or landscape architecture and urbanism is, is the way I like to see it. Uh, we can't do any complex project, large or small, without science, without... Um, a, a real recognition of what is needed in terms of public process and uh, without um, a serious investigation of a habitat condition uh, of adjacencies and so on. These are things that I think landscape architects have known forever. However, they have not really made them operative until more recently and so even a, a, a plaza in downtown Boston with um, less than one-third of an acre territory has involved for us several levels of science, horticulture, arboriculture, uh, soils, mechanics, soil chemistry, soil biology, and then all of the engineering that goes uh, along with that to design a sustainable site. So I think this is the opportunity. We've, uh, we, we've stepped into a situation where that level that is being engaged in the competitions is also expected in smaller projects. So yes, I, I'm on a quest right now, and uh, as you know, in curating an exhibition to understand more, more completely for myself and for others whether or not the expectations that have been raised in the competitions of the last 10 years are, are being manifested in, uh, in the specific practices and, uh, and projects that have been built. Uh, in that same time period. And I, I, I conclude in, in the early days of this investigation 
that um, they, these things are inseparable. Are today's projects carrying the fees in order to sustain this multifaceted uh, collective process? Uh, challenging at times. Uh, the larger projects, we're finding that, uh, you know, it's, it's just an, an inevitable part and you have to construe the team and the fee structure to be able to do it. And if you, if, if projects can't sustain that, then, um, uh, you know, you have to go an alternative route. And um, I'm afraid we still see a lot of work done without proper science, but I wouldn't underestimate also that uh, we have the capacity to learn on the ones that do support it for the ones that can't. Mm -hmm. And that's probably an age old uh, situation where you're hired for expertise you've already developed. Hmm. You you mentioned the the research you're doing for these competitions. The exhibition itself will be shown in Barcelona next fall for the fifth Biennale of Landscape. How will you attempt to organize uh, the handful of projects that you're currently researching? Well, it's, uh, it remains to be seen, and it's really uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a task that I share with uh, several colleagues in Spain. And uh, my primary responsibility is to identify uh, some of the issues and the trends, and to identify the projects for the exhibition. I think that by September we'll have a pretty good feel uh, for these reciprocities, as I call them, between. The expectations that are being raised in public competitions and the um, more localized efforts that are uh, that we're finding in the built work uh, in North America. So it's probably not we're not not able to draw all the conclusions at this time. But uh, I, I'm 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 really looking forward to this project as a way to uh, help situate contemporary practice within a larger culture and within a kind of reciprocal community in Europe. I think um, specifically the um, sharing of power that has occurred in the American democracy and has uh, produced uh, a regulatory and participatory environment here that is, uh, that is really complex and challenging is also beginning to happen in places in Europe. And, uh, and will also have, I think, uh, extraordinary impacts on the authority of the designer in Europe, as it has in the States. In a good way or a bad way? Is it going to constrain the designer? I don't think it's a pejorative situation. I, I think that the complex cultural situation is going to bring forward better answers not ones that, that you, you would say have, um, let's say, the authority of design traditions, mm. but, uh, but ones that have currency and accountability and uh, appropriateness for contemporary life. And would you characterize this as uh, an Americanism? Like, is that, will there be a, 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 some sense of North America coming from this exhibition that will uh, really differ from that which is coming out of Europe through uh, some of the major competitions or some of the bigger public works? Well, um, it's a complex question. Uh, there, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous history of competitions in Europe, to be sure, but there is uh, unquestionably also uh, an enormous tradition of the authority of power in a centralized design mind. And uh, I don't think that this would, what we're, what we're investigating here in this exhibition would be looked at as something unique to North America. I think instead, my hope would be that it, it, would, it would produce a set of characteristics that are indeed recognizable in European work. But maybe maybe they're not as um, foregrounded or as, as, uh, 
as obvious and plainly articulated as they are in the States. I can tell you that we spend as much time in negotiation of design here as we do in design. And I think that's also perhaps true for Europeans, but I think we'll, we'll understand uh, whether it's more or less, or whether it's um, uh, proceeding in a great direction or not, in the discussions that we'll have when the exhibition is presented in September. You are listening to Terrograms, and our guest is Gary Hildebrand. Gary is a principal at Reed Hildebrand, a fellow of the American Academy in Rome, and an adjunct professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. In 2005, he and his partner Douglas Reed were identified as Emerging Voices by the Architecture League of New York. What type of impact did the Groundswell exhibition at MoMA in 2005, I think it was, have on the practice? And does any of the work exhibited there influence some of your decisions in trying to create uh, an exhibit uh, about American landscape architecture? Uh, surely. Uh, I think it was, it was seminal in, uh, in one respect. I think there was an enormous pride uh, in, in, in my field in having a, such a significant exhibition in such a significant museum, particularly at the moment the museum reopened after being shuttered for a long time. So uh, that created a tremendous energy and enthusiasm. Specifically, with respect to the projects in the museum, uh, a handful of the projects will, will also be exhibited in our uh, project in Barcelona. But in fact, many of the projects are unbuilt projects in the groundswell. And so what you get is a, um, a kind of cross-current of uh, some built works, some current energies, uh, some of the things that arise from the competitions. And I don't know that you get a clear picture from that exhibition and its publication of anything more than a, mo a glimpse of a moment of practice around the world. You had American firms practicing in Europe, American firms building in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Far East, Europeans doing projects in the States, uh, really a, a, a pretty serious mixture of those kind of things. And that's, uh, that's, that's quite helpful, I think, to have put, assembled those as a group of projects. Not sure what the message is that comes out of it, except that it was a moment where the landscape is being recognized as being culturally significant. And here's a sampling of the work that's been done. We're trying to more narrowly bracket uh, some of the lessons specifically from the parks competitions and then some of the observations we can make specifically from the built works. So two, two rather narrower sets of brackets and we're looking for the, uh, for the fusion of them. Mm -hmm. Which built works are you looking at? Probably can't say yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, Don't have uh, final consensus. <laughs> okay. That's understood. <laughs> I've noticed that you're working on a lot of institutional work. Uh, you have a number of landscapes that are coming out of the ground for museums in Phoenix, the Taft Museum, the Clark Art Institute, the Parish Art Museum, and you're collaborating with Herzog and Demuron, uh, Dado Ando, Todd Williams, and, 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 and Billy Chen. How are you approaching work within this institutional framework and, and, and what are the tools you're using to make these landscapes? Doug and I built the practice on a love of gardens and a love of the tradition of landscape architecture that, that arises from garden history. And a few institutional projects in our early days in quite significant landscapes projects in Mount Auburn Cemetery and in the Arnold Arboretum, part of the Boston Park System designed by Olmsted, and in, even in places like the Taft Museum, a more recent project, but one in a, in a place steeped in, in American history. One thing that we, uh, we felt very strongly about and, and had a very uh, strongly shared belief in was that the institutional projects gave us a place to build 
that was somewhat in, uh, manageable in, in, in economic and, and political terms, privately owned, mm -hmm. but wholly visitable by the public. And so when we work on a campus, we think of ourselves as working in a very public domain. Uh, when we work for the art museums in particular, those seem to be, on the whole, perhaps our most significant cultural institutions, uh, at least in the last decade or so, or at least that's what we would be led to believe. And, and so there is a fantastic intersection between private enterprise, uh, which, which enables investigation and even enables risk-taking at times. It certainly enables uh, things to be built well and durably, but um, public access public obligation, uh, civic presence, and a contribution to the city if it's an urban institution. So this is why, this is fundamentally why Doug and I have really always loved to work in botanical gardens and parks, plazas uh, that are attached to uh, nonprofits or to corporations or to church organizations, religious institutions, or colleges and universities, uh, immensely public and also immensely capable of um, of, uh, of a private enterprise of a of a of a high ambition. But that doesn't take us away completely from public work. We we, we worked on a number of public projects, including uh, building a public park, completing this year in Somerville, Massachusetts, in a fairly tough uh, working environment. But the institutions um, don't stop building. They don't stop investing. They may go through cycles, but they are always there for the long haul. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is what makes uh, working for Harvard University or Brandeis University or Vassar College or, or the Dallas Art Museum uh, feel feel to us like we are able to make um, something that could truly be lasting and durable and a, and, a, and a real contribution to the culture. How does the materiality and tectonics differ between these institutional projects and the public projects? Well, I think you bring the lessons learned from private enterprise to the public realm. And I would say that this is probably as much about our individual careers as it is about any other uh, dimension of practice, but I think we are, um, we are now in a place, having built institutional work for a long period of years, we're in a place to turn the knowledge gained there back to the public environment. And so working on this public park in Somerville can tend to apply um, knowledge and tactics and, and, and approaches to practice that are, that are effective in, in, in a somewhat different decision environment uh, where you're working with uh, public officials, mayors, and really you're responsible to taxpayers and to uh, stakeholders in ways that institutions sometimes are not. When it comes to making material choices, I think we are we are obliged on every project, whether it's a public project or a private one, to get um, uh, good economical solutions. That's probably you know there's probably greater pressure there in the public environment than in the private one, but but that's that's the reality and. I don't think we wear different hats. I think we, we, we approach these projects with the same attitude toward sustaining and making them durable. What kind of tools or techniques or methods are you using relative to sustainability? And you did mention briefly uh, earlier in our conversation about a small plaza you're making or have recently finished in, in Boston. You know, they're not earth-shattering, uh, and uh, in some ways they are things that, um, that are uh, somewhat natural for landscape architects and 
and for people who have worked with the earth. We think back to the to the great traditions of gardens where capturing rainwater and using it, reusing it effectively was just um, smart gardening. Uh, we're now doing that in more sophisticated ways, uh, under paving and through paving, and getting points for it, and getting uh, scorecard points for it. But I think, uh, in some ways, you know, there there are innovations, there are innovative materials, and there are there are some. Um, Innovations, I would say, in, in understanding and applying basic soil biology. But I, I think these things, in some ways, are, are they, they deal with rather timeless processes, natural processes. And we happen to be foregrounding them now. And, and, and to some degree, I'm, I'm, I'm taken with the rise in the need for very good soil science and soil biology. And then, again, I'm, um, I'm somewhat astonished that we didn't have this kind of requirement uh, in previous generations. Now it's inescapable. I think for a long period of time it was not understood, really. The importance of it was not quite understood. And, and so, in a sense, I mean, this is one of the reasons why today we have an urban forest that's made up largely of what you could call alien plants, which are the survivors. They're the sustainable plants, none of which are native to our, our region, but which have been adapted to uh, rather uh, impoverished conditions. And it seems to me that we can predict with the rise of techniques of uh, more sustainable soils, uh, better reuse and recapture of rainwater, better protection of the planted environment in cities, a better application of, uh, of our uh, basic tools of developing uh, shade studies and massing studies and zoning for those conditions that maybe in two generations we'll have a, a rather different urban forest that's constituted of plants vegetative cover of canopy that produces far more benefit than the rather impoverished uh, characteristics of the plants that we have in our world today. We've lost the uh, American elm as a, as a primary con constituent of our canopy, and we've gotten instead the Norway maple, the ailanthus, and the black locust. Mm. But uh, I, I see a day, and I think in our lifetimes, where uh, we will return to great, sturdy plants that produce far greater benefit uh, in the next generation, I think, of, of plantations. We're, we're, we're slowly getting officials and um, caretakers and stewards to realize the importance of this. You recently taught a studio entitled Half Million Trees prototyping sites and systems for sustainable cities. What did your students teach you? The students have an enormous drive right now to um, uh, absorb information and to turn information into project generators. And I think this is an interesting part of our culture today and I'm happy to be a part of it, really. It's it's, it's something that is, is quite different from the things that generated design for me when I was a graduate student. And uh, it's, let's say, broadly stated, we could call it a kind of knowledge-based design generation. But, but I, I have to remark that, that the students in our studio, which I taught with Kristen Fredrickson, um, produced by canvassing other uh, data sources and by producing their own data, a set of, um, a, a base of knowledge about the condition of a planted city, that of South Boston, and we looked at several other cities, Toronto, Chicago, Baltimore, and New York. They produced a set of information that I think is tremendously valuable about where things are planted, who plants them, who takes care of them, how they're failing or what their characteristics are, 
And those, those investigations and the observations we were able to make from them led to what I think of as some new design directions for strategizing urban vegetation. Those include things like um, taking, uh, being opportunist about the adventitious growth of vines in neighborhoods where there is no room for street trees, or finding ways to borrow on private land to plant uh, city trees, or borrow on public land to produce shade for private yards mm -hmm. in neighborhoods that are extremely dense. The students learned uh, through their work that there is one tree for every 15 residents in South Boston. That's just not enough. It's not enough shade. It's not enough cover. It's not enough in, uh, seasonal interest. It's not enough spatial definition. It's not enough capturing of rainwater. It's not enough sequestering of carbon. And so we, we ran uh, full steam at, at at the problem, as it were, of how to in increase cover. If we accept that increased cover is a good idea, we said, how do you do it? Mm -hmm. And so the, the capacity for the students to, to generate knowledge and to build on it as design generators was really, uh, really quite remarkable for me. And here at Reed Hildebrand, what do you use for design generators? I think we borrow. Uh, we borrow on, on traditions. Uh, we try to um, understand the contemporary culture as best we can. We try to be very analytical in our work. Um, we try to take a pretty hard line at, at looking at histories of sites, at, um, at site characteristics, and we don't leave out subjective, intuitive responses to sites. I think our work is grounded in sites, and we like to try to make work that seems, in the end, as if it were inevitable, as if the answer grew out of the problem. Can't always do that, but I think we, uh, we're most satisfied when we can feel the presence of the originators of the work, our observations about the site and about the program, when we can feel those manifested fully in the bill work. That's, that's where it's the most satisfying. And if there is, if you see any consistency in the work, I think it is about a, uh, a somewhat uh, quiet and reduced um, palette and a, uh, a desire to be very measured and um, and simple in, in the geometries that are employed. And most importantly for us, uh, we seek clarity. Clarity of line, clarity of organization, clarity of relationship to program, clarity of, of relationships to adjacencies. And uh, we probably just hit that hard in the conceptual stage and we try to carry it through to the completion of projects. What do you enjoy today coming to the office? Yeah, it's, you know, I am uh, forever engaged in the work, and uh, uh, I'd never put it down. I have a, <laughs> have a very, very supportive partner who lets me do my thing about <laughs> 22 hours a day. And it's, um, uh, you know, there's also something else that is kind of surprising to me. I, I may have mentioned this to you before, but I never really realized until I had a, a group of people like this that I that I would love the organization itself of the office. The office is a community, and it's a very engaged community, and I really love that about it. And, and I I think the um, thing that you know keeps one going is the belief that you know you're trying to make some clarity through your work and through a body of work that maybe contributes to the long tradition of the discipline in um, driving people's stake further into the ground, you know, making uh, deeper connections with their place. And so, you know, there are a lot of things that are, that are uh, doltifying about the work sometimes or 
the challenges seem too great sometimes. Work gets tiring, surely gets tiring traveling on planes a lot, but the, the gratification of building the work and the knowledge that you will get there with nearly every project. Big motivation. As a closing question, what kind of advice do you give young practitioners going out into the, into the field? Well, I talk a lot to them as a teacher, and I give a lot of advice, and, and I hire a few of them, and, um, and then here we grow them into landscape architects. Um, I, I think I've heard myself saying for the last uh, few years that this is kind of an amazing time to be in the landscape field because the opportunity is kind of... Um, I mean, it may, it may be that every generation sees their opportunity this way, but, but with, a, with a reasonable perspective on the last 25 years and a little bit of perspective on the last 100 or so, I have to think that the landscape field is opening up dramatically right now, that it's doing so worldwide, uh, that in spite of difficult economic times here and there, and especially right now in some places, there is limitless opportunity for landscape architecture to engage the challenge of making contemporary life vivid and beautiful. And the level of interest in landscape in, from artists, from writers, uh, from poets and uh, playwriters, place-based film, I think in, in every corner of literature, surely in the sciences, the rise of geography, in some ways we could say the recurrence of geography or the resurgence of geography in, in the major universities, all of this is rooted in the greater importance in everyone's life of the landscape they live in. And this is just, I think, maybe unprecedented. So if you're just entering this field, it's going to change a lot. And I think it's world is your oyster. And it covers the territory. Uh, you know, I, I have written in the past that the generalist tendency of landscape architecture, which is built upon other disciplines, surely its knowledge base draws on many other disciplines, horticulture, geography, uh, the social sciences, architecture, and the history of art. Its generalist tendency tends to be a great burden for it because one could say it lacks its own secure foundation, but it also seems to me to be its great opportunity because it's great to be a generalist and to be able to tackle life from, a, uh, from the standpoint of, of a knowledge of how to work and how to build. It's great. It's great to know what the sidewalk is made of. It's great to know how roads are built. It's great to know how neighborhoods uh, grow and how they decay and how they can be revived. It's really great to know how a forest works and how to work in the forest. And, and these things are they're just part of everyone's life. And so, you know, can't say enough about uh, how uh, incredible the field is as a place to to study and as a place to work, and I think the timing couldn't ever be better. Great. Thank you for your time, Gary, and thanks for your insight into Reed Hildebrand and your insight into the practice. Thank you. I enjoyed this. Gary Hildebrand is a principal at Reed Hildebrand, a fellow of the American Academy in Rome, and an adjunct professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, where he has taught since 1990. Thank you for joining us for the 16th Dispatch of Terrograms. Join us next time for a conversation with Liat Margolis, co-author of Living Systems, Innovative Materials and Technologies for Landscape Architecture. To find out more about Terrograms and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terrograms.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Special thanks to the books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself more to the books at www thebooksmusic.com This concludes our 16th Dispatch of Terrograms. Thanks.
Because I just want you kept calling me at night, all hours of the night, calling my husband, my brother, calling me every day. He's after me, and I, I was devastated. I was without a job, without a salary. I, I was trying to get unemployment, and I was told it first kicks in after a few weeks. And I was busy looking for another job, and I also have a heart condition. And I told him I have a heart condition. I said, here, take a, a few dollars. I'm sorry this happened to you. Just, but just leave me alone. I'm not the person who, who deposited those.